Chapter sixty six, part three of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume six, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter sixty six Union of the Greek and Latin Churches, part three. After a tedious and troublesome navigation of seventy-seven days, this religious squadron cast anchor before Venice, and their reception proclaimed the joy and magnificence of that powerful republic. In the command of the world, the modest Augustus had never claimed such honours from his subjects as were paid to his feeble successor by an independent state. Seated on the poop on a lofty throne, he received the visit, or in the Greek style, the adoration of the doge and senators. They sailed in the Bucentar, which was accompanied by twelve stately galleys. The sea was overspread with innumerable gondolas of pomp and pleasure. The air resounded with music and acclamations. The mariners, and even the vessels, were dressed in silk and gold, and in all the emblems and pageants the Roman eagles were blended with the lions of St. Mark. The triumphal procession, ascending the great canal, passed under the bridge of the Rialto, and the eastern strangers gazed with admiration on the palaces, the churches, and the populousness of a city that seems to float on the bosom of the waves. They sighed to behold the spoils and trophies with which it had been decorated after the sack of Constantinople. After a hospitable entertainment of fifteen days, Paleologus pursued his journey by land and water from Venice to Ferrara, and on this occasion the pride of the Vatican was tempered by policy to indulge the ancient dignity of the Emperor of the East. He made his entry on a black horse, but a milk-white steed, whose trappings were embroidered with golden eagles, was led before him, and the canopy was borne over his head by the princes of Esta, the sons or kinsmen of Nicholas, the marquis of the city, and a sovereign more powerful than himself. Paleologus did not alight until he reached the bottom of the staircase. The Pope advanced to the door of the apartment, refused his proffered genuflection, and, after a paternal embrace, conducted the emperor to a seat on his left hand nor would the patriarch descend from his galley till a ceremony almost equal had been stipulated between the bishops of Rome and Constantinople. The latter was saluted by his brother with a kiss of union and charity, nor would any of the Greek ecclesiastics submit to kiss the feet of the western primate. On the opening of the synod, the place of honour in the centre was claimed by the temporal and ecclesiastical chiefs, and it was only by alleging that his predecessors had not assisted in person at Nice or Chalcedon, that Eugenius could evade the ancient precedence of Constantine and Marcion. After much debate, it was agreed that the right and left sides of the church should be occupied by the two nations, that the solitary chair of St. Peter should be raised the first of the Latin line, and that the throne of the Greek emperor, at the head of his clergy, should be equal and opposite to the second place, the vacant seat of the emperor of the West. But as soon as festivity and form had given place to a more serious treaty, the Greeks were dissatisfied with their journey, with themselves, and with the Pope. The artful pencil of his emissaries had painted him in a prosperous state, at the head of the princes and prelates of Europe, obedient at his voice, to believe and to arm. The thin appearance of the universal synod of Ferrara betrayed his weakness, and the Latins opened the first session with only five archbishops, eighteen bishops, and ten abbots, the greatest part of whom were the subjects or countrymen of the Italian pontiff. Except the Duke of Burgundy, none of the potentates of the West condescended to appear in person, or by their ambassadors, nor was it possible to suppress the judicial acts of Basil against the dignity and person of Eugenius, 
which were finally concluded by a new election. Under these circumstances, a truce or delay was asked and granted, till paleologists could expect from the consent of the Latins some temporal reward for an unpopular union, and after the first session the public proceedings were adjourned above six months. The emperor, with the chosen band of his favourites and janissaries, fixed his summer residence at a pleasant, spacious monastery, six miles from Ferrara, forgot in the pleasures of the chase, the distress of the church and state, and persisted in destroying the game without listening to the just complaints of the marquise or the husbandman. In the meanwhile, his unfortunate Greeks were exposed to all the miseries of exile and poverty. For the support of each stranger, a monthly allowance was assigned of three or four gold florins, and although the entire sum did not amount to seven hundred florins, a long arrear was repeatedly incurred by the indulgence or policy of the Roman court. They sighed for a speedy deliverance, but their escape was prevented by a triple chain. A passport from their superiors was required at the gates of Ferrara. The government of Venice had engaged to arrest and send back the fugitives, and inevitable punishment awaited them at Constantinople, excommunication, fines, and a sentence, which did not respect the sacerdotal dignity, that they should be stripped naked and publicly whipped. It was only by the alternative of hunger or dispute that the Greeks could be persuaded to open the first conference, and they yielded with extreme reluctance to attend from Ferrara to Florence the rear of a flying synod. This new translation was urged by inevitable necessity. The city was visited by the plague, the fidelity of the Marquise might be suspected, the mercenary troops of the Duke of Milan were at the gates, and as they occupied Romagna, it was not without difficulty and danger that the Pope, the Emperor, and the bishops explored their way through the unfrequented pass of the Apennine. Yet all these obstacles were surmounted by time and policy. The violence of the fathers of Basil rather promoted than injured the case of Eugenius. The nations of Europe abhorred the schism, and disowned the election, of Felix V, who was successively a duke of Savoy, a hermit, and a pope, and the great princes were gradually reclaimed by his competitor to a favourable neutrality and a firm attachment. The legates, with some respectable numbers, deserted to the Roman army, which insensibly rose in numbers and reputation. The council of Basil was reduced to thirty-nine bishops, and three hundred of the inferior clergy, while the Latins of Florence could produce the subscription of the pope himself, eight cardinals, two patriarchs, eight archbishops, fifty-two bishops, and forty-five abbots, or chiefs of religious orders. After the labor of nine months, and debates of twenty-five sessions, they attained the advantage and glory of the reunion of the Greeks. Four principal questions had been agitated between the two churches. One, the use of unleavened bread in the communion of Christ's body. Two, the nature of purgatory. Three, the supremacy of the Pope. And four, the single or double procession of the Holy Ghost. The cause of either nation was managed by ten theological champions. The Latins were supported by the inexhaustible eloquence of Cardinal Julian, and Mark of Ephesus and Bessarion of Nice were the bold and able leaders of the Greek forces. We may bestow some praise on the progress of human reason, by observing that the first of these questions was now treated as an immaterial right, which might innocently vary with the fashion of the age and country. With regard to the second, both parties were agreed in the belief of an intermediate state of purgation for the venial sins of the faithful, and whether their souls were purified by elemental fire was a doubtful point, which in a few years might be conveniently settled on the spot by the disputants. The claims of supremacy appeared of a more weighty and substantial kind. 
yet by the Orientals the Roman bishop had ever been respected as the first of the five patriarchs, nor did they scruple to admit that his jurisdiction should be exercised agreeably to the holy canons, a vague allowance which might be defined or eluded by occasional convenience. The procession of the Holy Ghost from the Father alone, or from the Father and the Son, was an article of faith which had sunk much deeper into the minds of men, and in the sessions of Ferrara and Florence, the Latin edition of Filioque was subdivided into two questions, whether it were legal, and whether it were orthodox. Perhaps it may not be necessary to boast on this subject of my own impartial indifference, but I must think that the Greeks were strongly supported by the prohibition of the Council of Chalcedon, against adding any article whatsoever to the creed of Nice, or rather of Constantinople. In earthly affairs it is not easy to conceive how an assembly equal of legislators can bind their successors invested with powers equal to their own. But the dictates of inspiration must be true and unchangeable, or a provincial synod have presumed to innovate against the judgment of the Catholic Church. On the substance of the doctrine, the controversy was equal and endless. Reason is confounded by the procession of a deity. The gospel, which lay on the altar, was silent, the various texts of the fathers might be corrupted by fraud or entangled by sophistry, and the Greeks were ignorant of the characters and writings of the Latin saints. Of this at least we may be sure, that neither side could be convinced by the arguments of their opponents. Prejudice may be enlightened by reason, and a superficial glance may be rectified by a clear and more perfect view of an object adapted to our faculties. But the bishops and monks had been taught from their infancy to repeat a form of mysterious words, their national and personal honour depended on the repetition of the same sounds, and their narrow minds were hardened and inflamed by the acrimony of a public dispute. While they were most in a cloud of dust and darkness, the Pope and Emperor were desirous of a seeming union, which could alone accomplish the purposes of their interview, and the obstinacy of public dispute was softened by the arts of private and personal negotiation. The patriarch Joseph had sunk under the weight of age and infirmities, his dying voice breathed the counsels of charity and concord, and his vacant benefice might tempt the hopes of the ambitious clergy. The ready and active obedience of the archbishops of Russia and Nice, of Isidore and Bessarion, was prompted and recompensed by their speedy promotion to the dignity of cardinals. Bessarion, in the first debates, had stood forth the most strenuous and eloquent champion of the Greek church, and if the apostate, the bastard, was reprobated by his country, he appears in ecclesiastical story a rare example of a patriot who was recommended to court favour by loud opposition and well-timed compliance. With the aid of his two spiritual coadjutors, the emperor applied his arguments to the general situation and personal characters of the bishops, and each was successively moved by authority and example. Their revenues were in the hands of the Turks, their persons in those of the Latins, an episcopal treasure, three robes and forty ducats, was soon exhausted. The hopes of their return still depended on the ships of Venice and the alms of Rome, and such was their indulgence, that their arrears, the payment of a debt, would be accepted as a favour, and might operate as a bribe. The danger and relief of Constantinople might excuse some prudent and pious dissimulation, and it was insinuated that the obstinate heretics who should resist the consent of the East and West would be abandoned in a hostile land to the revenge or justice of the Roman pontiff. In the first private assembly of the Greeks, the formulary of union was approved by twenty-four and rejected by twelve members, but the five cross-bearers of St. Sophia, who aspired to represent the patriarch, were disqualified by ancient discipline, and their right of voting was transferred to the obsequious train of monks, grammarians, and profane laymen. 
the will of the monarch produced a false and servile unanimity, and no more than two patriots had courage to speak their own sentiments and those of their country. Demetrius, the emperor's brother, retired to Venice, that he might not be witness of the union, and Mark of Ephesus, mistaking perhaps his pride for his conscience, disclaimed all communion with the Latin heretics, and avowed himself the champion and confessor of the orthodox creed. In the treaty between the two nations, several forms of consent were proposed, such as might satisfy the Latins, without dishonouring the Greeks, and they weighed the scruples of words and syllables, till the theological balance trembled with a slight preponderance in favour of the Vatican. It was agreed, I must entreat the attention of the reader, that the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father and the Son, as from one principle and one substance, that he proceeds by the Son, being of the same nature and substance, and that he proceeds from the Father and the Son, by one spiration and production. It is less difficult to understand the articles of the preliminary treaty, that the Pope should defray all the expenses of the Greeks in their return home, that he should annually maintain two galleys and three hundred soldiers for the defence of Constantinople, that all the ships which transported pilgrims to Jerusalem should be obliged to touch at that port, that as often as they were required, the Pope should furnish ten galleys for a year, or twenty for six months, and that he should powerfully solicit the princes of Europe, if the Emperor had occasion for land forces. The same year, and almost the same day, were marked by the deposition of Eugenius at Basel, and at Florence by his reunion of the Greeks and Latins. In the former synod, which he styled an assembly of demons, the Pope was branded with the guilt of simony, perjury, tyranny, heresy, and schism, and declared to be incorrigible in his vices, unworthy of any title, and incapable of holding any ecclesiastical office. In the latter he was revered as the true and holy vicar of Christ, who, after a separation of six hundred years, had reconciled the Catholics of the East and West in one fold, and under one shepherd. The act of union was subscribed by the Pope, the Emperor, and the principal members of both churches, even by those who, like Seropulus, had been deprived of the right of voting. Two copies might have sufficed for the East and West, but Eugenius was not satisfied, unless four authentic and similar transcripts were signed and attested as the monuments of his victory. On a memorable day, the 6th of July, the successors of St. Peter and Constantine ascended their thrones, the two nations assembled in the Cathedral of Florence. Their representatives, Cardinal Julian and Vissarion, Archbishop of Nice, appeared in the pulpit, and after reading in their respective tongues the Act of Union, they mutually embraced, in the name and the presence of their applauding brethren. The Pope and his ministers then officiated according to the Roman liturgy. The creed was chanted with the addition of Filioque, the acquiescence of the Greeks was poorly excused by their ignorance of the harmonious, but inarticulate sounds, and the more scrupulous Latins refused any public celebration of the Byzantine rite. Yet the emperor and his clergy were not totally unmindful of national honour. The treaty was ratified by their consent. It was tacitly agreed that no innovation should be attempted in their creed or ceremonies. They spared and secretly respected the generous firmness of Mark of Ephesus, and on the decease of the patriarch they refused to elect his successor, except in the cathedral of St. Sophia. In the distribution of public and private rewards, the liberal pontiff exceeded their hopes and his promises. The Greeks, with less pomp and pride, returned by the same road of Ferrara and Venice, and their reception at Constantinople was such as will be described in the following chapter. The success of the first trial encouraged Eugenius to repeat the same edifying scenes, 
and the deputies of the Armenians, the Maronites, the Jacobites of Syria and Egypt, the Nestorians and the Ethiopians, were successively introduced, to kiss the feet of the Roman pontiff, and to announce the obedience and the orthodoxy of the East. These oriental embassies, unknown in the country which they presumed to represent, diffused over the West the fame of Eugenius, and a clamour was artfully propagated against the remnant of a schism in Switzerland and Savoy, which alone impeded the harmony of the Christian world. The vigour of opposition was succeeded by the lassitude of despair, the Council of Basil was silently dissolved, and Felix, renouncing the tiara, again withdrew to the devout or delicious hermitage of Rapai. A general peace was secured by mutual acts of oblivion and indemnity. All ideas of reformation subsided. The popes continued to exercise and abuse their ecclesiastical despotism. Nor has Rome since been disturbed by the mischiefs of a contested election. The journeys of three emperors were unavailing for their temporal, or perhaps their spiritual, salvation, but they were productive of a beneficial consequence. The revival of the Greek learning in Italy, from whence it was propagated to the last nations of the West and North. In their lowest servitude and depression, the subjects of the Byzantine throne were still possessed of a golden key that could unlock the treasures of antiquity, of a musical and prolific language that gives a soul to the objects of sense, and a body to the abstractions of philosophy. Since the barriers of the monarchy, and even of the capital, had been trampled underfoot, the various barbarians had doubtless corrupted the form and substance of the national dialect, and ample glossaries have been composed to interpret a multitude of words, of Arabic, Turkish, Sclavonian, Latin, or French origin. But a purer idiom was spoken in the court and taught in the college, and the flourishing state of the language is described, and perhaps embellished, by a learned Italian, who, by a long residence and noble marriage, was naturalized at Constantinople about thirty years before the Turkish conquest. The vulgar speech, says Philelphus, has been depraved by the people, and infected by the multitude of strangers and merchants, who every day flock to the city and mingle with the inhabitants. It is from the disciples of such a school that the Latin language received the version of Aristotle and Plato, so obscure in sense and in spirit so poor. But the Greeks who have escaped the contagion are those whom we follow, and they alone are worthy of our imitation. In familiar discourse they still speak the tongue of Aristophanes and Euripides, of the historians and philosophers of Athens, and the style of their writings is still more elaborate and correct. The persons who, by their birth and offices, are attached to the Byzantine court, are those who maintain, with the least alloy, the ancient standard of elegance and purity, and the native graces of language most conspicuously shine among the noble matrons, who are excluded from all intercourse with foreigners. With foreigners, do I say? They live retired and sequestered from the eyes of their fellow-citizens. Seldom are they seen in the streets, and when they leave their houses it is in the dusk of evening, on visits to the churches and their nearest kindred. On these occasions they are on horseback, covered with a veil, and encompassed by their parents, their husbands, or their servants." Among the Greeks a numerous and opulent clergy was dedicated to the service of religion. Their monks and bishops have ever been distinguished by their gravity and austerity of their manners, nor were they diverted, like the Latin priests, by the pursuits and pleasures of a secular and even military life. After a large deduction for the time and talent that were lost in devotion, the laziness and the discord of the church and cloister, the more inquisitive and ambitious minds would explore the sacred and profane erudition of their native language. The ecclesiastics presided over the education of youth, 
the schools of philosophy and eloquence were perpetuated till the fall of the empire, and it may be affirmed that more books and more knowledge were included within the walls of Constantinople than could be dispersed over the extensive countries of the West. But an important distinction has been already noticed. The Greeks were stationary or retrograde, while the Latins were advancing with a rapid and progressive motion. The nations were excited by the spirit of independence and emulation, and even the little world of the Italian states contained more people and industry than the decreasing circle of the Byzantine Empire. In Europe, the lower ranks of society were relieved from the yoke of feudal servitude, and freedom is the first step to curiosity and knowledge. The use, however rude and corrupt, of the Latin tongue had been preserved by superstition. The universities, from Bologna to Oxford, were peopled with thousands of scholars, and their misguided ardor might be directed to more liberal and manly studies. In the resurrection of science, Italy was the first that cast away her shroud, and the eloquent Petrarch, by his lessons and his example, may justly be applauded as the first harbinger of day. A purer style of composition, a more generous and rational strain of sentiment, flowed from the study and imitation of the writers of ancient Rome, and the disciples of Cicero and Virgil approached, with reverence and love, the sanctuary of their Grecian masters. In the sack of Constantinople, the French and even the Venetians had despised and destroyed the works of Lysippus and Homer. The monuments of art may be annihilated by a single blow, but the immortal mind is renewed and multiplied by the copies of the pen, and such copies it was the ambition of Petrarch and his friends to possess and understand. The arms of the Turks undoubtedly pressed the flight of the Muses, yet we may tremble at the thought that Greece might have been overwhelmed, with her schools and libraries, before Europe had emerged from the deluge of barbarism, that the seeds of science might have been scattered by the winds, before the Italian soil was prepared for their cultivation. End of chapter 66, part 3